0: At luckylandslots.com.
1: Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law.
0: 18 plus terms and conditions apply. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 308th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards Podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and this episode is brought to you by Big Little Lies on HBO. The second season of Big Little Lies was hailed by critics as TV's best ensemble, As Good As TV Gets, and Exquisite, for your Golden Globes consideration in all categories. My guest today is David Glasser, a veteran Hollywood executive who is currently CEO and partner of 101 Studios, a global entertainment studio which launched at the 2019 Sundance Film Festival and which is behind the recently released director's cut Of Alfonso Gomez Rejon's The Current War, a film starring Benedict Cumberbatch as Thomas Edison, Michael Shannon as George Westinghouse, Nicholas Holt as Nikola Tesla, and Tom Holland as Samuel Insull. It began rolling out in America in select theaters on October 25th, more than two years after its original cut premiered at the 2017 Toronto International Film Festival, back when it was a property of the Weinstein Company, of which Glasser was then president. What caused the holdup? Well, in short, the explosion of the Me Too movement, starting with the flood of allegations made against the company's co-founder and co-chief, Harvey Weinstein. Glasser, a 48-year-old former child actor, had worked at the Weinstein company in various capacities since 2008 and says he did his best to keep the company afloat after Weinstein went down. But anything and anyone associated with Weinstein, including Glasser, was being looked at with suspicion. As everyone wondered who had known and enabled Weinstein's misconduct. And on February 17, 2018, about a month before the Weinstein Company filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection, its board of directors voted unanimously to terminate Glasser. At the time, Glasser said through his attorney that he had been, quote, scapegoated, close quote, and suggested that it was the board itself which had failed to stop Weinstein. Now, As Glasser returns to the business with 101 Studios and, somewhat surprisingly, a former Weinstein Company property in the current war, he is opening up at length for the first time about his journey to and through the biz, his experiences with and thoughts about Weinstein, and his own plans for the future. And so, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. David, thank you for coming in. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So I'm going to, of course, ask you about the current war in a moment, but I always, on this podcast, love to know about people's journey to what they are most recently promoting. And so I found it interesting. You really sort of grew up in this business, right? <laughs> yeah. I didn't know you gonna ask me that, but all good. <laughs> yes,
1: I did. I grew up in that, uh, that show business family that you would, uh, that you would call. So. And, and meaning, so your, your dad was like a Motown guy. So my dad was in the music end of the business. Uh, He was uh, pretty spectacular. So he sort of built uh, that music publishing business back in the day. He was on the music side and, you know, sort of an awesome dad, you know, sort of working uh, two jobs when we were growing up. He was uh, kind of a concert pianist and just really had an unbelievable eye for music and turned it into a big music publishing business. But he wrote incredible jingles, you know, for commercials and stuff. So we had a recording studio in the house. So it'd always be crazy. And you know, sort of Stevie Wonder would be over or somebody over in the recording studio. And, you know, just wild people kind of coming through over the years that he, uh, that he would do music with. So he sort of built that up and sort of into my teens was when he built it into a big music publishing business. And, uh, my mom was a casting director. My grand, both my grandpas, one came from vaudeville. So my dad's dad came from Vaudeville and actually started as the Ted Healy Stooges, which were the early days of the uh, of the Three Stooges. So, And then my other grandpa was on stage in Australia, and it's how my parents met. They both were working together in a show and said, let's introduce our kids.
0: Oh, my gosh. And then how did it happen? I know we won't harp on this, but you <laughs> were on the other side of the camera for a long time. You were a child actor in a lot of... Commercials, TV shows, and even films that people know, like Pee Wee's Uh. Big Adventure. So, how did that happen? So, you know, obviously,
1: parents in the business are always saying, "My kids are never going to be in the business." Um, (laughs) (laughs) And so, that was sort of the thought process in the family. But when we were, when I was about five years old, uh, we were walking through a mall, and it was one of those typical things you've seen only in a movie, where a woman comes up and says, "Oh my God, your kids should be in commercials. You should come to this audition for the Goodyear Blimp commercial." (laughs) And it was for a Goodyear Blimp commercial, Uh and I went out for that and. Gosh, I ended up getting very lucky. There was this phenomenal photographer and commercial artist by the name of Reed Miles. I think he's since passed. Reed, in the sort of early 70s, late 70s, he was like the, for all the ad agencies, he was this eccentric Norman Rockwell esque director. And he just found a liking to me on an interview that I went on. And it started from there. Probably between six and 12, I did. 50 national commercials and then did
0: shows like St. Elsewhere, Cheers, Small Wonder, Our House, Silver Spoon. Did you enjoy it? I mean, I I read one thing where you said, quote, I looked like I was 10 years old forever and I could work 15 hours close, quote. so you were sort of the, the dream guy for this. Yeah, it was fun. You know, look, it was
1: always great. I was never going to make it a full-time job, right? I was uh, I was the bully on Webster or I was the best friend on Silver Spoons or, or another show or, or uh, I was the buddy on with Jennifer Aniston and Charlie Schlatter on Ferris Bueller, the TV show. <laughs> so it was like I was number eight on the call sheet. right? And when you're number eight on the call sheet, like if you're number three, you're striving for number one. When you're number eight, We're going to get to five. (laughs) And so the last thing I was doing was Bill Bixby was actually directing us in Ferris Bueller was the last thing. And I went on an audition and Sid and Marty Croft were uh, remaking Land of the Lost Again, for yeah. like the third time. <laughs> and and I'm sitting there in the interview, in the audition, and then I'm at callbacks and producer callbacks. I'm going, I'm going to spend five years into my 20s, maybe three or four on the call sheet, being chased around by plastic boulders. So I thought at that point, <laughs> that and I it. got a job and I called my mother up and I said, Mom, I'm leaving that side of the business. I'm going to go get a regular job. At what age was this? About 18. 18, okay. In the business. And uh, I didn't pump, I was doing Pump Up the Volume at the time with Alan Moyle. And again, Eight on the call sheet. It was a great job. So it was fine. And then she's like, oh my God, what is it? We can get you help if you need anything. I said, mom, a good Jewish mom, right? right, right. So I, uh, I say, ma, no, I just want to go do something. So I got a job as a production cord. I'm uh, sorry, an assistant to like the assistant of the assistant <laughs> on an Elliot Gould movie. Which And one my job, I can't remember the name. Yeah. I was, I picked him up. My job was to basically drive to his house <laughs> and make sure Elliot Gould, uh, got to the set and take him to the set. Right. And I was my, I was, I was so happy. It was like, I was on a set and there's something about, and I just, it's an, it's an addiction of that smell at six o'clock in the morning of the trucks rolling in and the breakfast burrito in your hand. And (laughs) I just loved it. It's just like, I can't do anything else but that. So I started in production and that's sort of how I worked my way up.
0: And was there any, you know, you mentioned the the Jewish mother thing that we both have in common. Was there (laughs) any kind of pressure to go get a a college degree or something, or in this business, the guys who built the business never had that. So was that not an issue for your family?
1: Well, look, it it was, I tried it. So I did. I got six months into Cal Strait University of Northridge and I was in the radio, television and film program. I joined the fraternity ZBT and (laughs) I did it all. right? Right. And I'm six months in and I'm in the radio, television and film. By that point, I'd been working all this time. And it was tough because she's sitting there and the woman, I never forget the woman at the top of the classroom going, okay, this is the camera and this is the film. And I'm going, oh my God, I can't yeah. do five years of yeah. this. Like I've been on the set since I was six years right. old. So I came home and I said, I honestly, I can, I'm working as a PA mm-hmm. and they're teaching how to like, just understand what film yeah. is. I knew about film. I had already watched, you know, all the great movies. I i, I had more knowledge in my experience. And it's a tough thing because I have three kids and one, uh, one's at Chapman right now in middle of his thesis in his senior year. And, you know, I, I have pushed them to that college because I didn't do it. And I think some of the sort of business mistakes that I've made in my career of just, you know, bad decisions in sense of like, deals or you don't read something or whatever, I think, or the accounting side of early businesses, you sort of lose that by not having the school thing. The other side, the drive, the creative initiative of doing stuff. So I've always debated it, but with my kids, I sort of made them. So my parents were okay with it after
0: a little bit. So from being Elliot Gould's driver, how do you wind up doing, you know, it sounds like in those earlier, you know, years, foreign sales, some element of financing and production, just how did it, graduate into being something more serious.
1: Yeah. So look, I always loved it and I knew it was a business I wanted to pursue. So I wanted to figure out, you know, in my early twenties, sort of figure out how does this business work? You know, everybody's making movies, but I didn't want to be like sort of waiting, you know, for the next job. And so how do I be the master of my own destiny? And I got introduced to foreign pre-sales and I was like, wow, what a concept. Can you share for listeners who may not know just what what that means? So what it means is you can take something that's a script Mm -hmm. with a director and a piece of talent and you can go out to the international marketplace, you know, X amount of territories and you can actually get those buyers, Germany, France, Spain, England, India, West Indies to actually buy the movie to become your partner in essence and they buy it for a certain amount of money and then you split the back end after they recoup that money. And I was like, wow, I can get... 50 60 70 percent of the money so now i don't have to raise on a two or five million dollar movie i only have to raise a million dollars whatever so i was like okay this is definitely a business and start at the bottom of it you know selling smaller movies Sort of in those days, it was like you had to get a room at one of the hotels for your office. Well, we had no money, so it was like, okay, we'll get the room at the Carlton Hotel. So we're
0: talking about Cannes now. This is yeah. where most of this goes down.
1: Right, in Cannes. And we'll get a room at the Carlton Hotel, right. but we'll all sleep in it, like three guys,
0: <laughs> and
1: with our baguette that we got and a bottle of wine. And and then as soon as the buyers came in, in the right. morning, we shoved all of our clothes in the closet and made it our office. And
0: how old were you at this point? I was probably
1: twenty. Two so twenty-three, 23 yeah
0: learning to how to not in a in a negative sense but how to hustle yeah, you gotta, yeah. how to how to grind it
1: out and yeah. sort of understand the business and it just was such an unbelievable place to be to see and then to go to afm and can and see these rooms filled with 20 it still amazes me today mm-hmm. i was down there yesterday and it's like there's just movies yeah. everywhere being sold and I was like such an under business. Like I was a creative guy, but I'm like, wait a second. This is amazing. I can somehow figure out how to take the creative and, and figure out how to do it. So I came up in a time where foreign sales was booming.
0: It was what amazing. What was that? It was, a, was it, uh, I guess, pre-DVD boom? It was
1: right right about the DVD yeah. boom was the first yeah. boom. So DVD just hits in a big way. And it's you know the German Neur market explodes and it was just like there was all these companies coming into the marketplace. There was new funds, always new money, some new territory, and it was just wild to watch. It was such an incredible time, and uh, I had a blast. I mean, it was you know the movies were not of the uh, of the highest quality, but they were they were fun, and you sort of got to experience and understand how to. I think. If you if what well, my son is learning now, and I think maybe times have changed, is how to put a movie together. He's understanding the business rather than just studying 1960s cinema. Right, right. So he's he's studying that, but he's also learning distribution. And and in in school today, they actually they didn't really were teaching as much where I was mm-hmm. distribution and strategy and marketing and and because you have to when you leave college, you know you want to get a job. And you, while you're pursuing your creative side, you still need to put food on the table. Right. So I think that was obviously uh, the good side of I it. And mean, that's sort of how I came up through international distribution and, you know, worked my way up through that. Was so. there something in Cannes about Merv Griffin and Michael Jackson? What oh happened in Cannes? Merv Griffin. It was, it was, yeah. So basically the Michael Jackson story was made. So in this one office in Can, I hear these people. Sc- I go to open up the window and I hear them chanting chanting and screaming. And then I closed the window and they stopped, like calm down. And then I opened the window again and they're screaming. I'm like, this is weird. They must think some celebrities in the room. And so I open the doors and I go out on the balcony and then the people are going crazy. There's like 3000 people on the croissette. And then literally on the balcony, maybe five feet from me, the doors open and this man comes out with like a mask on and a black robe and I look over and literally five feet from me is Michael Jackson. Was this the one where he was dangling the can? No, this was no, this is in can this, and okay. he, he has a rose in his hand this. and he's like, they love me. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm like, Hey Mike. And he's like, Hey, and that was it. That was that was <laughs> the then trying to get to my room every night was uh, a bit of a nightmare because they had the entire floor. I happened to be one of the six rooms they let yeah. guests stay in. Maybe that's because we got the cheaper rates. <laughs> um, and they allowed us to be on that floor and it was right. just sort of crazy. It was, like his food at night was covered with blankets in the hall. Like, <laughs> it was just madness for like, I actually, actually, I think I eventually moved rooms because it was just chaos Not trying to much, get home. Yeah. Like, even if you had a room key, you couldn't get to the room. And Merv Griffin was interesting because there was a great guy who was the head of, if you remember, a company called Trimark. And Barry Barnholtz and I were, who is a really great guy. I actually, just ran into me. Lives in Calabasas, which is funny. And uh, he makes all those Lifetime movies now, mm-hmm. which is funny. The the ones my wife uh, gets me to watch during the <laughs> holidays, the those great ones. Right. He makes like fifteen of them a year now. Oh. So that's what he does. I'm like, it's an unbelievable business. Right. So he uh, he takes me out for this sort of meeting with Merv Griffin, and it was uh, really a uh, really amazing because it was in Merv was really sort of at that big time of. We're on his boat. I'm. 19 years old it's john paul mitchell on the boat and martin landau and then i think sharer i think it was Cher or somebody and i'm like i've got a full suit on it's 95 degrees oh, everybody's God. in their linen shorts you know <laughs> sipping you know veuve Clico and, and, and enjoying themselves and i'm this like you know young executive just you know ready to listen in on the merv griffin Barry meeting yeah. and it was wild
0: it was sort of a crazy time so I guess right around the turn of the century, there was Cutting Edge and then there was Splendid. Mm-hmm. These are the companies that you were doing. And was were you also with Yari at one point?
1: Yeah. So I, uh, I built my little foreign sales company, which was Cutting Edge Entertainment, me and my buddy. And it was nice and it was great. And it was there right in that height period. And then as everything is sort of cyclical, things take a dip. And in the peak of it, I got bought by um, one of the German companies, Splendid. And that was sort of, you know, great. We did NARC and we did Agent Cody Banks and uh, sort of a, a, a great run there. And then, you know, it was like sort of you look at things and you think, okay, what am I going to do next? And there were these uh, Mark Gordon, Bob Yari, Mark Gill, and Neil Sacker had opened up shop like down the street. And I had a relationship with Bob Yari and he said, you want to come over and take a meeting? And I said, sure. And he said, do you want to... Um, Come over and handle sales for us and start there and absolutely. And the stuff they were gonna make were gonna be bigger, high quality movies and it was great. The first movie out was a movie called Hostage with Bruce Willis and then came
0: Crash. I was gonna ask, so you were there with yeah. for Crash. Oh yeah, absolutely. I was, that must have been a, a mind blowing thing. It's a movie that came out in the middle of the year. Nobody was, I think, initially thinking awards and then it goes in up maybe the biggest upset in yeah. Oscar history, absolutely. So it was,
1: uh, it was great. It was we had a run there. It was hostage and great movies like Matador with Pierce Brosnan and Crash, which was sort of that you know little gem. Uh, Bob had, Bob had such an incredible. I early on, he told everybody he knew when he had read that script and he wanted to do it, wanted to make it. He said this is a movie that has a lot of people naysayed it. A lot of people oh, yeah. said no, I don't know, it may not be right for the marketplace, too small, and and he really believed in it. I think he was an early pioneer of this sort of producer financier model. You know, we have a lot. I think, in our marketplace, but it was sort of very new to the industry to say, "Okay, what you're going to produce and be able to green light movies on a truly, truly independent basis. We did Matador and we did Hostage and Hoax with Richard Gere and and uh, some really, really illusionist with uh, Neil Berger, uh, who I eventually went and did um, The Upside with. Super talented director. And so it was great. It was an unbelievable run. It was sort of like those early days of an office, like the movie Blow. Yeah. Like there's boxes are coming in and we're figuring out what pay TV was. And uh, it was a lot of fun. Made a lot of movies. I think it was like probably 30 plus movies in my time there with him.
0: I think there, you know, they're, with this podcast, there's a lot of people who want to learn about the business and, you know, learn from the successes and the, and the you know, roadblocks that have enc- other people have encountered with some of these early companies right through Yari, you are seeing, you know, the highs of the business, like a movie winning Oscars, also lows that, you know, you as you said, it's cyclical. There are lawsuits and bankruptcies and things that happen along the way. Was there ever a point where you're saying, let me give this up and try something else or it's not worth the, the risk or the hassle or whatever? Or were you always sure that it was the, the course to be on?
1: I think there's always those times and definitely in, in my path uh, where I've a couple of times questioned like, you know, why am I doing this? Is like, it's hard. It is. It's hard. And my, I always have this thing I say, like, you have to be able to see around corners. And it's hard because of business, the market changes, right? When I was there in the home video days, that was one thing. But then the home video gone or it's dipping down and that's lost. Streaming hadn't crossed yet of where it was. And, you know, you sort of think to yourself, like, what am I doing? Or a company goes bankrupt where they close up shop and you're sort of sitting there and, you know, and I sort of always sort of put myself out there. And sometimes that's really good. And also sometimes that's really bad in, you know, in the sense of the business end. So, yeah, I think a couple of times, but it's sort of the thing that just sort of sucks you back in. It's what I know. It's all I know. And I find myself sometimes, you know, thinking about like, you'll sit there when you're not doing something, thinking about like would I make that movie or how would I make that movie or why that movie not open or what happened? And so I always challenge myself by like sort of thinking about like, what would I do? And in Monday morning quarterbacking and in a lot of times in things that didn't work, like could you do it differently or in success? Could I have done that? And a lot of times I say, no, I couldn't have like, that was brilliant job. I think it's it's a lot of times is like, you're always sort of thinking and complimenting others. But what I always say for people who are looking at it is, you know, understand the core of the business. Like, creative is great, and and there are a lot of really smart people and people smarter than me. But I think what I I maybe would have gotten in college, I had to learn the business. I went to a college of reality, is what I call that's it. Right, yeah. And in college, reality includes. Whereas others got a diploma, you get knocked down, yeah. you get sued, you get beat up, you you don't make a smart decision, you get in business with the wrong person, and that's how you learn. I mean, I look at myself today at, at 48 years old, and I think I've I've learned a lot, probably more than than you know than others in some areas in the sense of business. But then it makes you stronger, it makes you smarter. And I always say to my son, you know, when he's sort of like my oldest, who's in film school, he's like, "Oh, Dad, why? Well, I mean, I could just, you know, I worked last summer at Nickelodeon, and you know, I did 650 hours. I could just do that and not have look at what I did. They love me there. They want to hire me back." And I go, yeah, but that college is going to help you make smarter decisions later in life.
0: So this leads up to the point, I think, where I first met you around this time in, I think it's about 2008, when you first, maybe you'd already known these guys, but I think when you first went to work with Bob and Harvey. Mm -hmm. And how did you first cross paths with them? And I would think their reputation as being the makers of of a lot of important movies, but also tough personalities might have preceded them for for you. So what what was what was that like? To how did it just come about that you were now, I guess, handling from was it from the outset, production, sales, and finance deals, or did it graduate to that? Right. So actually, I met them when I was at Yari.
1: They bought several, a couple of movies. They bought Hoax, they bought Matador, and they bought Hostage. So out of three movies, out of that slate of movies. And I was sort of at that time, in my career at Yari, I had transitioned to CCO and sort of chief deal maker with Bob and, uh, and Bob was sort of the creative force and, and I'd sort of negotiate or make deals or, or sort of put them together. And so I went up against Harvey a couple of times <laughs> and, you know, he's a tough guy. Yeah. And I remember on Matador, I'll never forget it. You know, Bob is a very interesting guy. He comes from the real estate world and the business is. He's a very creative guy. I think he went to film school and he went up against Harvey in the negotiation. And he looked at me at like 10 o'clock at night. And, you know, Harvey is used to the all night negotiation. And at 10 o'clock, Bob said, I'm going to bed. You can let Harvey know that we'll pick it up in the morning. And I had to go deliver that message, you know, to 20 Miramax executives that were sitting in the room. And I mean, Harvey went crazy, like, like what? Who does that to me? Do you know who I am? Like, yeah, we know who you are, (laughs) but do you know who this guy Mm -hmm. is? He's good, but he's not going to stay up all night. We'll figure it out in the morning. That's just how it's going to be. So, me and Harvey went toe to toe on a few deals, and in 2008, Glenn Basner was leaving, and he was looking for a president
0: of international sales at the time. This and, is now the WineSync company right. having, Merrimax had closed up yep. a few years earlier, and they're just getting off the ground at WineSync company.
1: Yeah, so they're just getting off the ground, and uh, and I uh, you know I sort of came in there, and uh, at first I was like, "There's just no way, this is not for me." What? Um, I liked my job, but it, it was nice, and again, it had cycles had changed at the at Yari at the time. They had gone into distribution. The business was in a downturn at that time. It was just. 2008 right. interesting time so it was a tough tough market so I sort of liked it but also things were slowing down so I had it pretty easy but Bob was like you should go pursue that and I'm like really and he and he's like yeah you know what it's an opportunity to make some great content I was like wow what?" my current boss is telling me like I should go pursue that and I thought wow that was a pretty classy thing. Uh, And he was sort of figuring out what his next thing was going to be. And, you know, business was really tough. You know, here's a guy who's financed all these movies and sort of also becomes a tough time for him as well. And again, the cycles of the business for anybody who's who's doing it. I think everybody has seen it right. We've seen it with the good and we've seen it with everybody. And, you know, you see it with any of the independent financiers right now. I mean, across the board, we're seeing a lot sort of struggle. And that's the business. Mm -hmm. So. I saw going for a meeting, and it was a typical, you know, sort of uh, thing. You go in, you get Bob and Harvey, you get all these executives, and there was a guy named, by the name of Lee Solomon and a guy by the name of Andrew Kramer, and they did their, you know, darn just, I'm still very, very close friends with, with Andrew Kramer. He's actually at Loeb and Loeb and one of our attorneys, and uh, you know, they're trying to convince me it's the greatest job in the world, <laughs> and the company is flourishing, and everything right. is amazing, right. and. You know, it's rosy petals and everything will be so easy. And I knew better. I knew it was going to be a tough job. And but I, the content is what attracted me. I had seen something that wasn't so great in the content they were making, but yet everything back in the Miramax days. And I sort of scratched my head. I, I like a challenge of sort of Say, how, why are they off the path? What's wrong? And, you know,
0: and what were they asking? What were they considering you to do there?
1: With so I point? was the president of International. That, okay. but I had bigger aspirations yeah. to sort of get over to the creative side. But I knew that was going to be my way in. Yeah. And with Harvey, you always have to sort of prove yourself right. that you can do it. So I came in as the president of International. And well, within days of coming to that company, he and I are locking horns and and it is unbelievable. And I was, you know, I was the international guy at that time. I'm like, wait a second, nothing I've been told is true. Right. The company's just in debt up to its eyeballs. I right. mean, I'm looking across the wall and I think maybe one of the couches getting carried out. The couch <laughs> might be getting taken out of the place and and it's 2008. Right. It just could not be a worse time. I, the rap insurance they had was was going out or going bankrupt or something. And Goldman was wanting to, you know, renegotiate their deal. And it was just craziness. So I sort of organically um, got to sucked into some meetings. And I sort of a couple of times raised my hands. I was all, be quiet. You don't know what the <laughs> fuck you're talking about. Go back to the international. That's what you know. You know, I was like, okay. Yeah. All right. And uh, one day I was talking to you know, I'll leave them nameless, one of the senior executives. And I was unloading on him and I was like, this is not what I signed up for. And I'm like, this is just, I thought this place was going to be great. They're off doing everything else. They're doing fashion and internet. And I'm like, what the heck is going on here? I signed up to work at a creative, they're like, you never even got to see them for for, for the time it I was, was there. It was even social networking, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, it was like, it was there. A small wonder was the right. company, some internet company. <laughs> and I uh, I was like, this is crazy. I don't want to be here. I want to get out of my contract. Right. And I said, said this to one of the senior, senior managers. Next thing I know, you know, Harvey and Bob want to see you. I'm like, did this guy wrap me out? <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, really? And I get called in and I swear it was like out of the mob movies. The only thing I was waiting for was the plastic on the floor. <laughs> Because I knew someone was getting whacked that day. And my assistant was Julie Rappaport, yeah, yeah. who now is the, you know, so proud of her. She's now the co-head of film at Amazon. Yeah. Um, and she was my assistant. I literally looked at her as I walked by her and I'm like, I'm not sure I'm surviving this. And we were in, it, it was, she had to be in New York. And uh, and I go in and it's like, I just get destroyed. You think you know better than us? Do you know who we are? And I said, well, I can tell you this. Yeah. I may not be any better than you guys, but I can tell you one thing. Ain't nobody making any films around here that anybody wants to see. Right. Like, this is awful. (laughs) Like, you guys are green lighting stuff off of napkins. Like, there's no methodology to anything. There's no models being run. There's no green. This is the Wild West. Mm -hmm. And I was like, craziness. So I then, you know, I'm told if I don't like it, I can leave. And I'm like, fine. And then the next day I get called back in and saying, well, you know, really a whole bunch of people in the boardroom and it was sort of a mockery of sorts to say well let's ask David what he thinks and I'm like guys it's not what I think it's just a reality like let's just sit down and get the top executives in the company and start looking at what movies we should be making and thinking about it for a minute that's all I'm not going to tell you what to pick or how to pick unless you want my opinion and so organically I sort of got pulled into an additional role of having some creative say and some deal say and, and being pulled onto phone calls. And I sort of figured out, okay, well, one of the biggest problems with the company is, you know, is it has a very tough exterior uh, to the town. And how can I sort of be that buffer between them and the agents and them and the talent and, and various people and, and on the business side. And so that's where I sort of found this organic role and with the staff and some various things. So, you know, that's what I sort of took on and, and uh, it was an incredible time, I will tell you, um, toughest job ever I've ever faced in my career, as grueling as it is, and for everybody, for not me, for just every employee in that company, but you sort of went, okay, I can put up with being yelled at or screamed at or, you know, because I'm going to, you know, of where I sort of am, but you, you get to a breaking point, where you get pushed, but is that, you sort of think to yourself, like, I'm getting pushed, but is that okay? Like King's Speech came around and it was a script that came in with Paul Bettany attached. And I read it and, 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 and Harvey and senior manager called me. what do you think? I think it's great. And I think it's something to go after. Finally, you're going to get on a plane, you're going to go to London and you're not going to come back until you get it. (laughs) So 24 days later, I found myself in London, literally every day going over to the producer's office or waiting four days to get another meeting. And it breaks you. Like there's a time right around day 20. I mean, I'm in the hotel and I'm, I got three kids and I wanted to go home and I'm like, and I'm almost, you know, broken because I'm just like, I can't get this done. What was the main obstacle? Just Peter Rice at the time was bidding for Fox Searchlight and it was, it was a, you know, it was the Weinstein company was not as shiny as it used to be. And you're trying to convince them that you have the money and we're going to be okay. And that we're going to, you know, clean up the genie, the lamp, and it's going to be really pretty again. And so I had to sort of, you know, so, you know, that's where the sort of role I became in is like, hey, go get on a plane and go to China, go to Qingdao, go to Dubai, go to, you know, and I sort of found myself in that position to chase projects and deals. And, uh, and it was incredible time. It really did turn around for a while there with. Reader, Vicky Cristina Barcelona and Glorious Bastards and King's Speech that year, then it was into the butler and silver linings and artist. The artist. We went back to back Oscars in eleven and twelve with the artist in King Speech. And, you know, it's it was a it was it was crazy and it was sort of also, you know, you came home from every vacation early. I'd be three days into a vacation with a family and you'd get that call and you're like, You need to get on a plane tomorrow and you need to go to and you need to go to that set or you need to go to that deal and you're like, you know, so it was it was an incredible time of sort of resurgence and 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 watching the company sort of go back and it was a great team the people there the head of distribution the marketing it was that team in 2010 11 12 13 bar none just i mean i think one of the best you know in the game at, he, that time. at what I think probably around then, when did your, your dad came in as head of music? So my dad came in, uh, to sort of redo music right around 2010 and sort of build out the music publishing end. And, you know, and, uh, it was, it was a fun because, you know, it was, uh, it was really, really great. I, I enjoyed it because, you know, he's great at it. So he put the soundtracks together or built out an entire music publishing business that brought the company millions upon millions of dollars, but more importantly, it was sort of fun. You know, he was in the LA office and I'd be in a meeting in the boardroom and they nicknamed him like the mayor. So like we'd be in a meeting with like bankers and 10 people and my dad would walk in and be like, we're going to lunch, two o'clock, one o'clock, want to have lunch? I'm like, dad, I'm in a meeting. Like, I'm in a meeting. Can you give me a minute? Like, oh, okay, okay, okay. Are we going to lunch? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, we'll go to lunch. So I got to have lunch with my dad once a week. It's pretty friggin' awesome. Yeah. I mean, I would hope my kids want to have lunch with me once a week, but Absolutely. yeah, it was fun. But he was literally, he could he was, he was like kryptonite to, uh, to Bob and Harvey. They would never yell at him.
0: They, and not, they, that Mr., wouldn't Mr. be the G. case for too many others. Yeah, but. no,
1: it was, no, it was not. Not for,
0: they, there was a little bit of respect for the, uh, for the older, uh, seasoned <laughs> vets. But well, it's no. interesting because they, it was also the same with, um, who's the, the older distribution oh, guy? Oh God. Um, oh my gosh. He came in every Monday.
1: I'll never forget. Steven Bruno had a marketing meeting with him every Monday he's since passed right so um
0: oh my gosh it'll come to me
1: arthur manson arthur yeah Yeah. arthur manson what a great and never and arthur would come in and it was wild because he would arthur would come in and he'd have still in his older age he was slower and he would shuffle up to the boardroom where all these young executives were just beaming with things to say and he would say one or two amazing things and be like oh Thank you, Arthur.
0: (laughs) So why was it just a matter of burning out or, or what happened that in August 2015, you say you're leaving the Weinstein company and then a month later, you change your mind and say you're coming back. What was that about?
1: So I got to a point where I was fried. We had a lot of deals that didn't happen. You know, there was a sale to ITV that didn't happen. I think a lot of the senior management was just tired. You know, you can only be on the treadmill for so long. And I just got to a point and, you know, I, you know, I'd been, I had been out there just thinking about what that next move was. And there was an opportunity that popped up that felt right. It had its own, um, you know, sort of restructure issues that would have sort of gone through again, that cyclical basis for everybody. And so it was a big task, but yeah, I was, I was sort of done. I was sort of fried. I was sort of angry and, and, and a little tired and think that I needed to change. And then, you know, it's the, you know, sort of amazing thing that, you know, they do that's unbelievable is you sort of make a decision and then they sort of come for you and, you know, promise you the world and, you know, tell you everything is going to change. And the board told me everything is going to change and things are going to become better and there's going to be better green light committee and
0: governance. And so I'm like, all right, maybe, maybe I'll give it a little bit more time. So... You you had a new three-year contract and it sounded the way it was reported in the media. You, there had been interest in, in you from DreamWorks Animation, Netflix, a bunch of places, um, but you came back basically to expand the TV yeah. business, right? Yeah. Do you regret coming back? In hindsight now?
1: Yeah. yeah. I mean, in hindsight, when I sort of look back on it all, uh, yeah, I mean, absolutely nobody, I think anybody who came back in that time frame or anything, you sort of look and say, you know, wow. But yeah, I, uh, there was a lot of good people there that needed guidance and stuff like that. There's a lot of people there that worked for me for years that I was leaving behind who had worked for me at other companies or people that I had convinced to come there. So I also felt a sort of like, you know, I'd promised a lot of people being there was going to be like, we're going to be making this content or doing things. And so I felt like sort of abandoning him too was a thing that I sort of felt was a
0: little tough to deal with as well. Well, one of the things that happened when you came back, I think, was the the beginning of the current war, being at Weinstein Company. And just, I remember on, and I, I made a note of this, September 9th, 2017, I'm at the Toronto International Film Festival, Princess of Wales Theatre for the world premiere of the current war. I quite liked it. A lot of people were giving it a hard time that night. And in fact, so I, I remember I... I think I tweeted or I wrote my article. I'm back in my, I skipped the party back to my hotel room and I get a call. It's probably like midnight Mm -hmm. from, you may have been on the line, but I know it was was Harvey saying, you know, don't cave into the pressure from these other people who are knocking it, you know, stay tough that you, you know, with what you believe. So he was clearly though, was not going over in the way that anybody involved with it wanted it to at that time. What from where you were sitting was the issue the the issue was that the movie was rushed to be there
1: and I think the lesson that I saw a lot is that happened right if um, you know Harvey wanted the movie out he wanted that at a festival or he wanted it somewhere you know he was determined to get that done and you sort of bought into it because you know sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't in the case of current war it wasn't ready it just wasn't uh, Alphonse wasn't there Alphonse wasn't there and he just sort of was like, you know, I need more time with it. And it got rushed into a place where it just was, shouldn't have been showing there at that time. And I think with filmmakers, you know, you sort of need to let them have that journey to get that film right, right? If, if I always say this something internally, like you got to leave it all in the field for marketing or even for the filmmaker, meaning that to get that cut to the place where they're the happiest, right? It's going it, to, it, that way, you're never going to look back and, and have any regrets, right? They, if I believe a relationship between the sort of filmmaker or the studio or everybody is. We all do our job. And no matter what happens afterwards, if everybody leaves it all in the field, then nobody can say anything to anybody and we did it, right? And, and that's sort of how we feel. But when you have somebody who feels rushed or a date that's forced upon distribution or it, it's, it's any of the chain,
0: people sometimes feel like they're not ready. And so the situation here was that the movie was going to be released in November – 2017 so again september 9th 2017 is the toronto premiere november 2017 was going to be the release and then october 5th 2017 i just am wondering this is the day that i guess the world changed in a lot of ways when the new york times story came out had you hear about it what was your reaction
1: Look, we had heard the bumblings um and had been called, you know, a little bit before. So you're sort of uh not you know, very shortly before something was in the ether. You could just tell, you know, we I was in LA and you couldn't get anybody on the phone and you know, anybody in New York was unreachable and something was just going on of a level that was something else. The storm was coming of of something and uh you know, I'd been called by some reporters probably a week out, you know, maybe uh, two weeks out, week and a half out, and you sort of got little tidbits of what was going on and not everything, and you're sort of trying to put puzzle pieces together because we were all talking and several of us were getting phone calls. So that's sort of when we uh, when we knew, and we had also heard about Ronan's piece too, again, that there was a piece coming behind it. And, you know, you sort of ask people and, you know, you you know, I had no problem ever confronting Harvey on anything. I just did.
0: This was my relationship with him and to the part that he hated it. We should say like he and he obviously and Bob thought very highly of you to the extent that. So when when it all kind of blew up, what was your title at the company? I was the COO at the time. Right. And and they would regularly say they regarded you as like a third brother, right? Yeah. I mean, (laughs) They're a third brother in the sense of uh, you know making the
1: money, yeah, right? right? That's I don't think it was family dinners and <laughs> and 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 Thanksgiving I was being invited over for, right? It wasn't ever there that was... kind of personal no, thing. No, I never yeah. had it. Never yeah. had it. You ask anybody in the sense, my that wasn't it. I mean, look, yeah. it was it was business, yeah. right? I was the guy to get on the plane, and as I said, I've been to the farthest lengths of countries and, you know, give a call to this agent at CAA, this needs to be – I was the business business guy and I think – look, I don't take credit because it was a team. So I'll say it like this. The team and I really turned that company around, the distribution, the marketing. We got an energy behind us and I was able to go and I, we were able to start making our own movies and movies that we grin or went to Harvey and said – got to make the upside or we got to make silver linings now with this package or whatever it was and there was a sort of sense of like wow we did that not mm-hmm. just him or them right but we did that was he okay about did he did he give credit where credit was due yes he was it was half and half yeah so it was half and half you'd sometimes get a really great kudos right and then sometimes you're like not so you sort of lived with it, and you but you you were able internally, or we were amongst our own group, we would go out to dinners and do things, so you know I was the the brother by business of what I could deliver for them, right, and so we made a lot of incredible deals because it really i had it was a team right you can't do something like this on your own, and so but it was you know I had no problem taking him on, and uh and, you know, sometimes I just was like,
0: you know, this is just life is too short to be screamed or yelled at or threatened. And I guess we should emphasize, I think you said it a moment ago, but so he and Bob are in New York. You were always LA? I was, I was in LA, but I always was in, you know, I, you'd there. be in New York, you'd be in any city
1: around the world in five minutes. I was in New York, <laughs> you know, to London, to wherever I needed to be. But I spent, you know, I would go to New York and uh, spend time in New York and, uh, and be there for the sort of team and, you know, we'd go in to meet with the international team or, you know, the marketing team was there. So I spent a lot of time, you know, doing that. So I would always sort of, yeah, but I live in LA.
0: So when you, when you read that article that you've been hearing was coming, mm-hmm. did you immediately know there's no coming back from this for the company or what was your reaction? Well, no, I actually didn't.
1: I actually felt that it could have been the opposite, which is, you know, that this company was strong enough to go forward on its own. I had a different opinion. And I felt like these team, this team here can go do this and, and maybe there is a better world without, you know. If you cut ties with Harvey. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. And,
0: uh, and that was the vision sort of, I saw at that point of, you know, of sort of moving on. Was he as, I'm not going to harp on any of this, but I just think it's to go to where we get to the present. We just have to establish, you know, what was going on when this movie was in limbo So the, the, the world, as you know it, you're at this company, the company, everything is, is in jeopardy because of what's now come out. Do you call up Harvey? Do you say, what the fuck? Like, what are you, what are how do you handle that moment when the building's on fire?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So
0: look, I did, I did. And it was the last conversation I ever had with him. And it was the
1: day, I think it was the day after or, because i I've been trying to get him and you just, it was impossible. It was like lock and key and the door was closed and you couldn't, you know, you couldn't even get a phone call in and get past five people. And, uh, I did. And I, and I said, you know, come on, like, like what the fuck, you know? And, you know, if any of this is true, okay. Which it sure looks like it is, you need to do the right thing for all these people here and, you know, and stand down and, you know, and just, you know, not, you know, let this, let these people try to figure out what these pieces are because it was a really emotional time in the company. There were people who had been there 28 years, 29 years, 15 years, 16 years in the halls crying, you know, rightfully so emotionally exhausted that their lives were in this company and there were victims and, and survivors and, and, and employees and all of this sort of in one big, uh, bit of momentum. And, you know,
0: And you guys did, I know from, I had friends that were working there with you guys and you gave it a go for a while to keep it afloat. Um, But I wonder just from the the perspective of, you know, it's sort of like cast a, it made people defensive who ever dealt with him in a a way, because from the outside, I think people assumed, and it's not only in, in the company, but even in this whole business, they say this about journalists. Everyone must have known. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that's if, if that's not the case for someone, that's a terrible thing to be accused of. Right. Look, it was, it was, I think, a time where,
1: you know, I think that was that shadow was cast across anybody, anybody that had touched business with our company or any of the other companies that were going through it momentarily afterwards. Right. Who knew what and why? Now we have lawsuits that are out books that have been released um articles and paperwork from the company the accounts have been gone through the emails have gone through so there's a picture but back then there was the unknown and and i'll be the first to say also like we all at the company didn't know did money come out of the company did it go to any people was it why like you think you know and i i wasn't you know we 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 i wasn't on the for to, to to do anything with the money, but you want to know. So then you're asking questions to your board. You can't get answers. You're like, I don't, you know, what's going on here? And, you know, with his, when I was on the phone with him the last time, it was like complete, utter denial. You know, I'm wrong. You know, why am I believing everybody
0: else? And, um, and that was the last time I spoke to Did him. Did you like, feel that the way you were treated in the exit of the, leaving that, that company You know, there were there was there were insinuations like how could someone not have known about the HR complaints or the payoffs or whatever? Did you feel that you were it was inaccurately portrayed that you would have absolutely known more than than you're saying you did? I think there's a lot of stuff across the board that was inaccurately portrayed. However,
1: I do understand that time because everybody has to sort of sit back And we're in a media revolution, you know, social media, all of this going on that everybody wants to sort of, and it was a time where a lot of people got hurt, are hurt and hurt. And and there were a lot of people out there that wanted answers. So I think I've learned to look back on it and realize that I can't be upset about that because there are people in a lot worse position than myself. And yeah, I mean, it was sort of, you sort of think like, wow, I put all this time in, I really worked hard to protect these employees, meaning
0: from like just the, the grind of the company. And then there's this whole other um, end of it, but. And you've said in other things, I read that it was like, you know, it was understood that he had extramarital activities, but it was not ever non-consensual. Is that correct? From what, again, from what I know yeah. you saw Harvey always with, you know, anybody
1: he would go to anything. So you always saw that and you would think, okay, that's for, that's, that's his thing. Whatever. And, you know, it's not my place to to tell him what to do. And nor did anybody else. This has been 30 years. I was only there for eight and a half of which I was the, you know, in really running the company for about six of it. So, but it was, in, it was a crazy time. And I think everybody needed to try to figure out what really went down and did the company pay off anybody and was there anything? And then, you know,
0: it sort of got a little, you know, it just got to be a point where I think everybody had to sort of figure it all out. So you and the company that relationship ended in February 2018. A month later the, they go for chapter 11 bankruptcy protection. So that was the end of them. What were your thought? Were you always saying rather than, you know, join some existing operation, I want to be the master of my own fate in a way and start something myself or how did you end up arriving at the idea let's start this this new place 101? I think it was, I think there was that moment that we talked about at the beginning of this, which
1: was like, am I just done with this? Is this like, I was fried. I was, you know, had been through the company. Mm-hmm. Forget about what had just happened. Again, like I said, you know, there's a lot of people who were in a much tougher place. And, uh, and, but I just looked at the business and said, this is just, look at what's just happened to all these, you know, all these people. And that was probably one of those moments where you just go like, why am I, what am I going to, what am I doing? And so do I want to go work somewhere? Or do I want to go and do something else, you know? You know um, what would you have done? I, l- I love real estate. Yeah, I do. I think it, it fascinates me. It's sort of very similar yeah. in a way. You take something that's, you know, you take it from scratch and you can make one version of the movie or the house with linoleum and uh, Formica and that's one version, sell it for one price. Or you can put a bigger star and put Viking and granite and beautiful marble tile and make it for a better thing, right? right? I don't know. Yeah. It seems like there's a synergy there or there's a, a way to make it work. But I then sat down and I thought about the business and sort of looked at Elaine and And we were really at the end there on the business end on fire. We were in a place where the employees were cranking and the team was doing a great job and the TV business was booming. We just made a $200 million deal with David O. Russell at Amazon for the largest TV show sale ever um, on a project that I had been uh, Shepherding, that was sort of a baby that, uh, that I'm dealing with, with Scott and Alexandra and David O. I just made a four-picture straight-to-series order with Apple before wow. they even had their content division up. Straight-to-series order wow. on an idea that I came up with that I had wanted to make for years. Um, I always wanted to remake the greats in the miniseries, the music greats. Elvis, you know, any of that. So I went and had locked up the rights and sold it to Apple and we're gonna do these big scripted sort of minis like six million an hour and something really amazing. So, you know, and it was unbelievable. And we had all this interest to buy the TV business and the movie business. We had Taylor Sheridan's next movie was sort of one of the last movies, Wind River. We were just I was just making a movie that was a pet project that I had put together with Neil Berger and me and Jeremy Zimmer had traveled across the country to get Kevin Hart. And I was like, there's a movie called The Upside, which was based on the Untouchab French movie that we had bought. So I felt like I was in this like really great place. And I'm like, you know what, I got to think about maybe can I go and do that again with the right team. And that distribution team at TWC was pretty bar none, unbelievable. There was some key people, you know, the head of acquisitions who found Taylor Sheridan, James Allen, Laurent O'Cran, who was sort of the head of distribution. I'm like, you know what, guys, don't go do something else. Let's go figure this out. Um, And let's keep making those kinds of movies that we love. And
0: uh, was Was any part of you worried that by just association with Harvey, it would be hard to get something off the ground?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. There was no question. I think, uh, you know, I just thought by being at that company, it wasn't even association with Harvey. I think a lot of us felt like coming out of there, and especially if you're in the senior management end, there was no question the town was in a place of sort of, uh, you know, well, you know, and remember, nothing had come out at the time. uh meaning there was no books, no articles, right. no things. Uh, you know, it was sort of an early end. But then by the time I got to the part of 101 starting, a lot of stuff had sort of been out there. And um, but, yeah, absolutely. I did and figured we had to
0: sort of prove ourselves again to everybody. And so it was if I'm correct, it was you and. David Hutkin, who had been the CFO at Weinstein, yeah, he had been the CFO the
1: last sort of nine months when Andy Kim left. a year, he was really the head of strategic partnerships. But again, I brought him in. He was going to DreamWorks with me. We've sort of been a unit together. Um, I'm the one who brought him into the company. Mm-hmm. Wildly, he had a uh, crazy clause in his employment contract, which he only would report to me, not to Harvey and Bob. <laughs> actually, it became a bit of a trend, actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so he came with me, and he, you know, and uh, and sort of had a vision of you know, how to do it. And, uh, uh, sorry, even before that was sort of, so it was a little bit before he was still there until sort of July. And, um, I had been talking to a really good friend about sort of like, you know, how do we do this and what do we do? And we were sort of scratching our heads thinking about what would be the, um, what would be the uh, the right way to sort of go in and really build a truly independent movie and a company. And we're thinking about, okay, how much money can we raise and what can we do? And so it just sort of organically started to take flight. And I didn't know that we were going to build out a fully fledged studio. Because um, you ended up with, what did I see? Like $300 million in financing? Of capacity. yeah, of Capacity, finance yeah. is great. So we end up in a, in a great place where, but we had great sort of shareholders who showed up, who believed in the type of product we were going to do. And I had worked with several before who sort of wanted to see the company, you know, pieces
0: of the company or those kinds of movies that we do best continue. So how does The Current War reenter the picture?
1: So one of the first things as we're sort of built the company and we're getting everything set up, we get a phone call from the bank, uh, who ended up taking the movie back. And this we is knew- Is Lantern? That or this what? was from- like, Taking it back from Lantern, uh-huh. which is just ironic in the whole thing, Seen. uh, me and my buddy were the ones that brought Lantern into D W C which is just crazy. And then I find them, they fire me and uh, end up buying the company, which is just remarkable. I get a call from the bank. I hear it's available. I then get a call from, it's very funny, one agent, two agents, three agents, like, this would be a great thing. And at first I sort of scratched my head and I said, no, I'm not going to have anything to do with any of the films. Because
0: it, it would seem like there's a, conti- a continuity yeah. between the Weinstein yeah. Company and you.
1: And, and just sort of like that put the you know I, that but then the, what quickly takes over is that, wow, you know, if I'm really gonna say to everybody, this is the kind of company we want to be, what a better way to take a movie that's sitting on a shelf with Martin Scorsese as the executive producer, Alfonso Rejon Gomez, who is a super talented director who didn't get his cut, Benedict Cumberbatch, Michael Shannon, Tom Holland. Nicholas Holt, you know what, I don't know if we ever can get the patina of TWC off of it, but you know what,
0: I, I want to give this a shot. And, and it wasn't a hugely expensive thing to get it to you guys, right? Look, for relatively, a company, for a new yeah. company, yeah. you know,
1: it was millions and millions yeah. of dollars. Yeah. Uh, yes, it was it a 7 or $10 million acquisition out of a festival, no. But it was still a big chunk of money and a big commitment with PNA and everything, so yeah, it was a, you know— almost 15 million dollar oh, wow. you know by the time you're done with
0: everything yeah. um endeavor mm-hmm. not cheap and what what you did before you would ever let the movie be seen again was you go to Alfonso and you say what like or, or what did he he was itching to get back so and he tinkering. was already
1: getting back in there so he had already he already started or had the vision of tinkering it and he had already started to do one pass that everybody stepped up to sort of help him do so I can't I don't want to take away from what Basil Lwanek and uh, Timur Bekmatov had done. They gave him the road to already start that. And that was what they did. When I got there, I said I was going to go and give this the path to, to get out there. So we stepped up and did what we did. And then I feel, you know, sort of there was momentum behind it. And then Al- Alfonso came to me and said, I want to take one more crack at it. I'm like, great, let's do it. And we did took another crack at it and he got it to where that moment And I won't ever forget. I was sitting with him at lunch and he had a notepad in front of him with all, with these last bit of changes he wanted to make. And he said to me, look, I can't ask, but, you know, it's going to be whatever it is going to be a hundred or one hundred and twenty five thousand dollars to do it. And it was just a matter of like, yeah, do I a mean, you yeah, keep doing because he it, it, because of where he had been with it sort of being cut off at Toronto, he, he, it came to him in little sports of time, right? And he didn't have that right amount of time to get it right. And he finally felt he had gotten it right. So we, we, we stepped in and I think it was a matter of, and it was the whole team. You know, it was the whole team looked at it and said, let's get behind this. It's just the right thing to do and it's the right movie and it's the right thing to say, no matter how much money we make or don't make. It's just the right thing for the company to be part of because I think a lot of times movies get decided by how big they are at box office or, you know, how much money is made, which, yes, we're in a business, right? I get it. But there's also the fact of sort of putting that movie out there and getting, you know, sort of the
0: ability for it to be seen. And isn't if – it's been reported that Alfonso sort of a, a mentee of Scorsese and Scorsese got involved with the editing – yeah. Is that true? Yeah, yeah. From what I understand, it,
1: he had, um, that again happened in that previous when Timor and Basil had had gotten that cut going right when I came into the picture. Mm-hmm. And he did. Uh, him and Marty are close. And he had an incredible clause in the contract where Marty sort of had that final cut approval. And that was sort of how Mike Simpson and Roger Green and Chris Donnelly geniusly were able to get
0: the movie back. Right. So yeah, and, uh, and he helped them. So how did it feel to have this go out to the world finally and to, in a way, introduce your company to the world? Look, I think it was great. I couldn't be prouder of the
1: movie and of the talent and partners and everybody and my team, um, because you're going in to release a movie that I couldn't ask for a harder job. And someone said to me, why? And I said, type in Current War, what comes up? shows a 2017 movie with a 31% Rotten Tomatoes. Now you got to go try to release a movie. It's almost an impossible task. I mean, the fact to do any money at the box office, if anybody goes and just Googles it, I I kept asking my head of digital marketing, is there any way to change that? No, you can't. Well, so the movie never came out. And it's also showing a box office number that it never opened in the US. Was there ever any thought to changing the title? You know, it was, I think that would have just been trying to put some makeup on it or something to make it look different than what it was. I think we wanted to stay authentic and real. And I think the only change that the team brilliantly came up with was that it deserved its, its new Rotten Tomatoes score, which they, you know, was the, this is the director's cut. That's truly what it is. And it doubled its score, you know, from 31 to 60 something. So I thought, wow, again, not measured in dollars. That's a pretty unbelievable task, you know, for them to do that And it was great to see the team working together, right? This is some people had worked together, others hadn't. So it was this new machine and just looking and saying, you know what? I think this team is going to go really far because they were given every roadblock that you can imagine, uh, everything you can imagine that would have been against you to
0: try to release a movie and they did it. So to just close the last minute, we always do kind of just a rapid fire. First thing that comes to your mind, what is the one-on-one project that is still to come that you're most excited about at the moment I'm really excited about Unstoppable
1: uh, I think it's a we do true stories really well and, and we we have a great motto in the company which is that Neil's our head of marketing and it's we create cultural conversations and we're doing it with um, Dwayne Johnson and producing it with him and it's a true story of Anthony Robles you know who was the one-legged high school wrestler who went on to become world champion and I think it's just a beautiful story and the kind of story that is such an inspiration, and I think it's the kind of thing we're really excited about, sort of um, watching it or make a big announcement in the next few days on it. And it's like one of those movies, it's homegrown. Yep. Something we bought internally that Dwayne and his partners
0: are super passionate about. So we're very excited about that. Bob Weinstein has now started a new company as well. You know, Harvey's a separate person. He's distanced himself. What do you, Any thoughts on on Bob's now back as well?
1: No, I don't.
0: If you ran into Harvey, if you turned a street corner in New York and saw Harvey, what would you say? It would be tough. I have a lot to say. I would have a lot to say. I'm not sure what I would do in that situation. Have you read the, the books by the people who broke those articles originally? They've now, in the last two months or something, they've all come out? Yeah. Any, any reactions? No, I think they're, you know, super phenomenal
1: reporting. Um, I have, you know, an incredible respect for obviously what all of you guys do. And I think, you know, look, it's, it's, it's well done on their part and, um, it's incredibly in-depth and, uh, well done journalism.
0: And lastly, in this business you've been in since you were, what did you say? Six or what was it? Yeah, six, 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 six. You know, you've, you've done so many, different kinds of things in this business, what is there left that, not a specific project or whatever, but is there, maybe a specific project, is there something that's sort of on the to-do list, the bucket list that, you know, you want to make sure you get to do before it's all said and done many years from now?
1: Wow, that's an interesting question. Um, I think the one incredible thing that I'm sort of uh, looking forward to is watching, you know, one of the things I always loved was watching young executives flourish, you know, and watch them go out and do certain things. And so I sort of saw that happen at TWC where they would build and they would go and have these incredible jobs. And I sort of want to see that within our own, like these, there's a lot of incredible executives. And so for me, it's like building something that all these people are going to be able to flourish and sort of, you know, be able to build their own creative talents. I, I enjoy that. that. That for me is, I get enjoyment in watching other people do really well. And um, and for me, if I can build a place that is that opportunity and they have a great
0: idea or a great movie and then it gets made nothing would make me happier than that and two of your three kids gonna gonna be the next generation yeah, of Blaster, third generation of yeah, blasters exactly. in the film business but congrats on the current war thank you so much for doing this thank appreciate you pal appreciate it thanks very much for tuning into awards chatter we really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast on your podcast app of choice and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg, and you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Finally, be sure to check out all of the other shows that are part of the Hollywood Reporters Podcast Network, Rebecca Ford and Rebecca Sun's Hollywood Remixed, Leslie Goldberg and Daniel Feinberg's TV's Top 5, Josh Wigler's series regular, Carolyn Giardina's Behind the Screen, and Seth Abramovich and Chip Pope's It Happened in Hollywood. On behalf of all of us at The Hollywood Reporter, thanks for listening.